It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Welcome to Bloomberg Opinion. I'm Bonnie Quinn. This week... The export controls that are being invoked are quite confrontational. But if they're difficult to enforce, that could prove counterproductive on all sorts of levels. Stephen Mim on the current spate of U.S.-issued export controls and the effectiveness of these actions through history. Also, it will be a bumpy road to find a new equilibrium between China's rich, basically big tech billionaires, and powerful, basically the government. Shuli Ren on China's rich and China's powerful. Not necessarily one of the same. We'll also speak with Alexis Leondas as we head towards the final month of the calendar year. What you should consider before December 31st in order to reduce your capital gains taxes, assuming you have any this year. First to the markets, we got the minutes from the FOMC's latest meeting this week and plenty of Fed speak as we waited out until December 14th. I asked Bloomberg Opinion's Jonathan Levin if there is something the Fed wants to communicate to the market in preparation for that meeting. Yeah, I think it gets really tricky for them. I think obviously they're still trying to keep financial conditions relatively tight. And I think that their messaging efforts to do just that are getting away from them a little bit. Certainly in the last few weeks, we saw tip space 10-year real yields trading at just about 1.4%, so near the lowest since September. That's a, a pretty obvious indicator that maybe conditions are ceasing to be as tight as they would prefer. So, you know, you may see some of these Fed officials Certainly Powell himself do a little bit of classic jawboning, maybe try and get those real yields on the 10-year up a little bit. But quite frankly, it's going to be difficult because everybody knows that they're data dependent here. They're going to take everything he says before the next CPI with a grain of salt and really just see what the data shows us. Hmm. And this all comes back to this balancing act they're trying to do where they're trying to slow down the pace but without letting financial conditions loosen too much. And again, they're kind of doing an okay job <laughs> at that. And they're in a difficult position where I'm not exactly sure what they could be doing better here. But conditions are getting a little bit looser than they have to be comfortable with. Would they go so far as to hint at the possibility that they might change their minds back to 75 basis points? You know, it's possible, but I don't think that they can really go there. I think the risk there becomes potentially losing credibility. And I think, you know, the Fed is just going to have to get comfortable with the fact that this is going to be a game time decision. We're going to get two key pieces of data in the next few weeks. Mm -hmm. In some ways, I think average hourly earnings coming on December 2nd might actually be the more important one because there are so many cross currents in this inflation data. But if you do get average hourly earnings coming in again month on month at something like 0.3% and you get another beat in CPI, it's really hard to see anything preventing them from going 50 here at this next meeting. 
you say that you know maybe market pricing is getting away from the Fed a little bit. Can you think of anything that the Fed might do between now and December 14th in order to reverse that trend? Yeah, I mean, so the main thing that they can do is really just focus at this point on how long they intend to stay higher. I really think that there's very little to debate at this point in terms of the pace. Everybody knows that they're they're stepping down. We've talked about this a lot before on this program, they just have to take the velocity down so that they can find the right setting as they get to their ultimate destination point. And frankly, I don't even think that there's much room left for debate in terms of the destination point. When you hear the Fed speakers out on the circuit, really, you know, the range of opinions is pretty firmly between 475 and maybe 5.25. So barring something, yeah. yeah. So barring some dramatic change, it really doesn't feel like there's a lot of wiggle room there. I think it really is just all about communicating. If this is indeed their intention, the idea that they are going to stay higher for longer, maybe until the very very end of December 2023, maybe even come out and say something along the lines of, even if we slip into a recession, provided it's not a historically bad one, we're going to stay there. Apart from average hourly earnings, what might put a spanner in the works in terms of CPI data or the jobs report? I mean, are you anticipating that we'll continue to see CPI coming down, even though I know the last CPI report you thought might be reflecting better conditions than are actually out there because of medical costs? Yeah, so we've had a couple of head fakes in the past, say, 12 to 18 months. There were two big ones, right? And after each of those, they proved to be just that, a head fake, right? And the month-on-month inflation bounced right back. We do know that this quirk in the data involving health insurance and the medical care broadly is going to be a repetitive feature here. Mm. So I do think there are a lot of reasons to suspect that there may be a bounce back after this extremely, extremely good print last month. But it may still look reasonably good, and it's all going to come down to how good is reasonably good. Is everybody pretty much in agreement at this point then, Jonathan? It sounds like you think that is the case, except for maybe the tips market, which might be just a little bit behind. Or what's going on in the tips market that there isn't agreement? I mean, I think tips market is in agreement insofar as it's reflecting a loosening of financial conditions. You know, I think that that's really what's going on across the board. You know, this is where it gets sort of tricky, right? So at the short end of the curve, things remain reasonably tight. But people don't actually borrow at the, yeah. at, at the short end of the curve, right? The mortgage is priced off of the 10 year. And Jay Powell himself actually talked about this after the last Fed meeting. And so that's where it gets tricky. And I'm not exactly sure what the Fed can do short of drastic steps like selling bonds off of its portfolio, which would clearly, clearly spook the markets in ways that the Fed is probably not prepared to do. So, you know, it's basically it's going to come down to what does the data show? And they may have to come up with a new playbook if financial conditions feel like they're getting much looser from here. Bloomberg Opinions, Jonathan Levin. Stay tuned. Alexis Leondas next with a reminder that your losses this year can be put to use. And later, Shuli Ren on China's offering to and from big tech. This is Bloomberg Opinion. 
Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. It's time to start thinking about tax season. Yep, we might be four months out, but you want to start thinking about taking those L's now before December 31st. Goodness knows it's been an easy year to rack them up. Well, Bloomberg Opinion's Alexis Leondas has poured over the rules on loss harvesting. We asked her for a user's guide, and it turns out those losses may not be so painful after all. Alexis, it's a fascinating time to be in the markets, but it's also a fascinating time to take losses because you might just end up with more cash than you think. Explain to us what you discovered when you went looking to see what it means for your taxes to quote unquote harvest losses. It's been a painful year for most stock investors. There's really no way around it. And, you know, a 20% plunge in the Standard Poor's 500 index is is rough. But there is a small consolation prize. Given the downturn in the market, you do have one of the best opportunities in years to lower your tax bill. The U.S. tax code allows you to do something called tax loss harvesting. And that's basically where investors sell off poor performing stocks, and then you use those investment losses to offset any capital gains from selling better performing assets. And those can be stocks or bonds, even a home or a business. And to take it a step further, if your losses exceed your gains, you can even deduct up to $3,000 against your taxable income. And if you have losses beyond $3,000, any losses beyond that can be carried forward every year until death to offset gains in future years. Incredible. Now, there's something just a little bit counterintuitive about selling something that you still think might go up, right? So how do you get around the psychology of that? Right. No, that's a great point. So basically what you do is sell those poor performers, lock in those losses, don't just sit on paper losses, but then make sure you buy either a similar stock or a fund right away so you can keep your portfolio balanced and stay invested if and when the market starts to turn around. Now, if you do that, you have to be really careful because the IRS has something called the wash sale rule. And basically what that is, it says if you sell a security and you buy the same security or one that's considered, quote unquote, substantially identical, 30 days before or after selling the stock in question, then it can't be considered an investment loss and you won't be able to use that loss against any of your capital gains. So you have to be very careful and either have a good accountant or read the rules very closely. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And and keep in mind, you won't get fined if you run afoul of the rules, but you won't be able to get the tax write-off. So if the whole point of tax loss harvesting is to get that write-off, then you obviously want to be careful and make sure you're following the wash sale rule. Now, I'm sure many professional investors know these rules backwards and have been using this to their advantage all their investing careers. But for people who may not be fully aware of it, is there a place they can go to figure out exactly how much they can harvest? Definitely. So a brokerage firm will typically flag for you anything that's disallowed to make sure that you're in accordance with the Washdale rule. They always send a 1099 form, typically in January, that will detail all of your gains and losses from transactions during the prior year. 
So it's on that form. There'll be a special column about wash sale stuff. So anything that's disallowed should be listed there. But it's important to raise that there's some murkiness around what substantially identical means. And, you know, some of the tax experts and accountants I spoke to said there's not that much in the way of case law explaining it. Hmm. So I raise the example, like if you buy one share class of Alphabet Inc. and then you sell it and you buy a different share class of Alphabet Inc., is that substantially identical? Or if you have mutual fund shares and you sell those mutual fund shares and that mutual fund that you previously had tracked a specific index but was, say, a Vanguard index fund, if you sell that but you buy another fund that's operated by BlackRock or Fidelity, but it's tracking the same index. Does that qualify? So there is a little bit of, could be confusion, and there obviously could be people who may interpret these things a little bit more aggressively than others. Now, did you find out any answers to those questions, or does everybody have a different answer? Everyone pretty much has a different answer. Um, But I would say my rule of thumb is basically you're better off being more conservative and just wait for that in total 61-day waiting period because it's 30 days before and after the sale of the security and then buy what you really want back, Um, especially considering, you know, trading fees are pretty low. We obviously have sites like Robinhood and others that make trading fees pretty negligible. So because of that, I think the best kind of advice is to just be pretty conservative and then after that waiting period, you know, swap back in if you really wanted to have that share class of Google or you really wanted to have that specific mutual fund stick with that. Now, Alexis, we've been talking about single stock U.S. names. Do the rules change if we're talking about a different geography? Um, In the U.S. specifically, like if you're talking about a single stock or a mutual fund, the same rules apply. Um, And for mutual fund investors specifically, if you tax loss harvest, this year, um, it, you know, the benefits of doing so are amplified. That's because it's a little complicated, but basically the way mutual funds are structured, if other investors want to sell their shares, the fund often has to sell appreciated holdings to meet those redemptions. But the investors who remain in the fund are basically on the hook for any gains the fund makes from selling those shares. Mm. So you may be in a fund that's gone down, that has negative returns, but you could end up getting these capital distributions in December, which someone I was speaking to described it as a real kick in the teeth. Not only did you lose money, but you're also receiving this capital gains distribution, but you didn't actually get any money. And even if you reinvest the gains back into the fund, you're still on the hook for taxes. So that's why selling your losses and then using those to offset these capital gains distribution um, can be can be really um, helpful. Now, you raise a very interesting question because many retail investors have been involved in crypto in some form or another. Are the rules the exact same for crypto? Um, They are not exactly the same. You can, in fact, use crypto. You can sell crypto losses and use any of those losses to offset gains. So in that way, it's similar. But crypto investors have a really big advantage. Um, The wash sale rule that I was speaking about, it doesn't apply to digital assets. Hmm. So if you're a crypto investor and you sell something, you can basically turn right around and buy the same coin, especially if you believe in that coin, you know, you want to stay invested. Um, You don't have to have that 60 day waiting period. Um, But there's a catch. There are some, you know, tax experts who say crypto investors could get burned by a separate principle called the IRS's economic substance doctrine. That rule basically says you can't do something just for a tax benefit. You have to expose yourself to some sort of market risk. Um, So then the question is, okay, well, 
how long do I have to expose myself to market risk, you know, to then justify turning around and buying that same coin? And, you know, whether it's 10 minutes or 10 days, I think is really anyone's best. But again, my advice goes back to, as with stocks, err on the side of caution, just because if the IRS does in fact audit you, and the whole point of what you're doing is to try to, you know, take advantage and make next April a little less painful, you know, you don't want to then have to backtrack and be, um, you know, having to account for the things that you ended up selling. And Alexis, this all has to be done by December 31st, obviously. Yes, year end. So basically any losses have to be locked in by year end and that will count for your 2022 tax returns, which are due next April. Bloomberg Opinion's Alexis Leondas. China's President Xi Jinping has been making small but potentially pivotal changes recently. They may go some way, that is, towards patching up the COVID-battered economy. Certainly investors think so, but they are skittish. I asked Bloomberg Opinion's Shuli Ren to give us a snapshot of China's current, pretty precarious fiscal and social positions. So, Shuli, we're seeing a new approach from China's government. We're also seeing some deaths. What does it all mean for the reopening story? I think investors were pinning too much hope on the China reopening story. Keep in mind that for the rest of the world, the reopening was never an easy, smooth process. Even Singapore, which is very, very well run, they went through a zigzag, open, closed, prolonged process. And we're going to see very similar situations playing out in China. But directionally, China is going to reopen because, as Bloomberg Opinion has written quite a few times, the Chinese government's fiscal coffers are getting empty they will have no choice but to open. And another thing I think investors can watch is that for all the Chinese cities, it's going to be one city, one policy. You're going to see big cities such as Shanghai, Guangzhou, Chengdu, they are going to have very different responses. And some of the cities that do very well, their city mayors are going to be promoted within the China's bureaucratism, and they're going to be President Xi Jinping's new prodigies going into 23 and 2024. So you're saying cities could actually be in competition with each other to reopen more successfully than the next? Absolutely. I mean, cities have been competing with each other over fiscal dollar, over human talent, over a lot of things. And they are going to this time compete with each other to reopen in a smooth way because the city mayors, they will be promoted. Well, there's so many strands to the story that are happening simultaneously. Another thing that the market is watching very closely is the methods that the authorities are using to punish tech firms. And markets are taking that well in the sense that these punishments might mean that these tech firms will finally be out of the corner, if you like, will be back in the good books of the Chinese authorities. Tell us a little bit about what's going on here. Uh, It's a realization from the Chinese government that they're stuck in an arranged marriage with the big tech companies. (laughs) I mean, in the last one year and a half, the Chinese government was like beating down big tech. They didn't want oligarchs. They didn't want them to be too powerful, right? But at some point, they start to realize tech companies, they are the major job creators. Young people, young Chinese, they don't want to go work in the factories. They want to work for tech firms. But going forward, I think what's going to happen is the Chinese government will still emphasize prosperity. And the tech companies also need to think about this notion of effective altruism. They have to think about how to help the local governments where they do business generate fiscal income, provide social welfare. And what you see with JD, for instance, is that the JD senior executives, they're going to cut their own pay so that they can provide housing for younger 23, 24-year-olds so that they can climb the middle-class social ladder. And we're going to see a lot of that. Instead of direct tax payments, 
big tech, they're going to try to find a way to help local governments work, perhaps in the form of private-public partnership, perhaps providing housing to the young. Yeah, I mean, it's fascinating because it's in line with the pursuit of common prosperity and it allows Xi Jinping in some ways to do a U-turn and to sort of allow the tech companies to distribute their own profits in order to lift up the lower middle classes. Is it a U-turn? If this was what Xi Jinping was going to do, why didn't he do it originally? Well, keep in mind that when China started the tech and develop a crackdown, it was in the middle of 2021, and the Chinese government's fiscal coffers were quite full. China's economy was doing pretty well back then. Mm. That's when they started a crackdown. And the things have changed. The government has no more money. And then the developers are no longer buying land. Right? Land sales is a big string of revenue for Chinese government. So at some point, they realized that they have to step back in their crackdown towards big tech and they let big tech pay more taxes and provide jobs. Yeah, and it sort of works to everyone's advantage because if big tech is allowed out of the sandbox and back into the markets for real, then presumably at some point demand will be created and jobs will be created again and so on. I guess that's how Xi Jinping and the PBOC are thinking of it at least. Does it work like that, Julie? I think that's what a lot of market participants are hoping for as well. But it will be tricky. It will be a bumpy road to find a new equilibrium between China's rich, basically big tech billionaires, and powerful, basically the government. Just like China reopening, I think we're going to see a bunch of zigzags and public outcries. But the greater trend is that I think going to 2023, there will be an equilibrium, new equilibrium, new social contract between big tech and big government. Well, and it's not just big tech. I mean, is this the first in a line of industries? Will we suddenly see gaming industries, for example, do the same thing? Will we see the education companies, the online education companies that were also cracked down upon suddenly become wealth distributors? I think education companies, their best days are over. Unlike gaming, education companies, they would never be able to create as many jobs as the likes of Tencent. Some of them are already coming back. So instead of teaching Chinese lessons, they're hosting debate cards, right? Um, But they will be smaller. Bloomberg Opinion's Shuli Ren. Stay tuned. The University of Georgia's Stephen Mim next with thoughts on how export controls will impact U.S.-China relations. By the way, do send us your thoughts and opinions. I'm at vquinn at bloomberg.net. And don't forget, we're available as a podcast on Apple, Spotify or your favorite podcast platform. This is Bloomberg Opinion. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. The International Monetary Fund says the rise of trade barriers against China and other countries over the past year could cost the global economy $1.4 trillion, or 1.5% of GDP. Managing Director Kristalina Georgieva told Bloomberg the potential loss for Asia could be double that. For Asia, the loss is much more significant because Asia is so integrated in global value chains. I spoke with Bloomberg Opinion columnist Stephen Mim, history professor at the University of Georgia, about the history of export controls out of the United States and whether the intended outcome is worth the loss to global productivity. 
So, Stephen, export controls originated with the Trading with the Enemy Act of 1917. We should maybe think of export controls under that rubric, right? Because while the language might seem maybe softer, certainly the actions of the Biden administration, as under Donald Trump, are quite hostile towards the likes of China. That's right. So export controls like the ones that the Biden administration slapped on China relative to advanced computing technologies, specifically semiconductors and the like, are without a doubt a fairly hostile action. Mm. And as you point out, they began with an act passed on the eve of World War One called Trading with the Enemy Act, which, as the title suggests, is not exactly a conciliatory piece mm. of legislation. And while they were applied with a fairly limited or light touch at that time, they did end up being applied on a much wider scale by FDR during World War II. And then even more significant and relevant for our own moment during the early years of the Cold War, when the ease and enthusiasm with which the State Department and the president from Truman onward applied export controls is really quite extraordinary. And it became a real powerful tool in fighting the Cold War in its attempt to deny communist countries access to advanced American technology. Now, is it the case for certain that without access to U.S. technology, China is going to have problems? Yes. So this is the real, real looming question hanging over a lot of this. When export controls were previously imposed during the late 40s and 1950s, the the world was literally divided. It's not like, you know, there were huge numbers of Soviet students studying in the United States, as there is now Mm. with Chinese students in the United States. And so access to these technologies could be more readily shut off than they can be today. And this is worrisome because, on the one hand, the export controls that are being invoked are quite confrontational. But if they're difficult to enforce, that could prove counterproductive on all sorts of levels. And it works both ways. I mean, it's the obvious thing to point out, but at some point, the U.S. won't have access to certain technologies and certain engineers. And you don't see this ending well, do you? Well... There are several things to keep in mind about this action that are noteworthy, that stand out as potentially watershed moments. Donald Trump as president had imposed limited export controls, but they were much more selective and somewhat discriminating in their impact. That could have been written off as a one-off, but the fact that an ideologically quite different president Joe Biden is not only following that lead, but ratcheting it up significantly and imposing blanket controls on certain technologies is truly noteworthy and suggestive that we've entered into something eerily familiar to those of us who've studied the Cold War, that it was a time of quite tense relations and the likelihood of retaliatory action was very high. And unlike China or Soviet Union then, China has more power to hit back (laughs) in all sorts of ways. And so this is worrisome on multiple levels. Whether it will end badly, it's hard to know. It may also force the Chinese to the negotiating table. Who knows? Maybe it'll have a de-escalating effect, you know, escalate to (laughs) de-escalate. 
argument. Well, you would hope so, especially if you were a globalist, I guess. But it will at some point have an adverse effect on the balance of payments situation. It certainly probably will. And that's incidentally why export controls fell out of favor in the late 60s and 70s was aside from detente and lowering of the temperature in the room during the Cold War, it was starting to hurt U.S. technology companies automakers and, you know, anyone working in any kind of technology because they were being shut out of markets. Mm. So that something similar might happen here where the balance of payments issue becomes ascendant again and forces the reckoning. So when we talk about technology decoupling, how far does it go, Stephen? Is it partially done already? Well, the fact that there are so many partnerships between U.S. tech companies, Chinese, and conversely, so many Chinese students studying as undergraduates and graduates in the U.S., the decoupling has a really long ways to go on that level. Mm. But one could imagine that it could accelerate quite quickly if this continues. Xi Jinping has actually somewhat indicated that China is starting to turn inward, becoming more autarkic, which may mean that they will take measures to cut those ties as much as the United States. The FT's Rana Faruhar said recently that countries and companies need redundancy in sourcing these days and that executives are going to have to rethink the idea that excess inventory is bad and maybe even just-in-time supply chains are a thing of the past. Is that overstating it slightly or is going to be the case? No, I, I actually think that's spot on. It's staggering sometimes to realize how sophisticated and complex just-in-time inventories and supply chains became at the peak moment of globalization, pre-COVID, pre-trade war with China. And the fact that they crack so badly under that stress test would probably indicate that we really do need to rethink them because in all likelihood, given current events, the war in Ukraine or other geopolitical tensions that are starting to bubble up, we can't depend on this kind of moment or phase of globalization lasting indefinitely Mm. where you can construct this kind of intricate supply chain system. So yes, absolutely. I think that we need to rethink inventory and rethink a lot of things. And as as you also point out, that having multiple suppliers, backup suppliers is essential, as well as obviously reshoring some of this back to the United States. It really is amazing how things have been changing and how attitudes have been changing as executive actions get taken. You talk about the chance of normalizing trade relations. What is a normal trade relationship, Stephen? (laughs) Well, a normal trade relationship in the system that prevailed until quite recently was, you know, relatively few tariffs and low barriers to trade and in some measure of reciprocity, at least between nations that were participating in this post-Cold War And moment. the idea is that that made us safer, right? And that's why export controls are in the hands of national security agencies. Right. Absolutely. But did it make us safer just because we were trading chips and chip technology and chip making abilities? Arguably not. And part of what you're seeing, I think, with the rise of the export controls is a fundamental rethinking of beliefs about the transformative power of American technology. There was a kind of naive belief, in my own opinion at least, that by sharing technologies via American corporations, this would generate through some magical process a kind of development model where countries like China that had been communist and oppressive would suddenly become liberal democracies. I mean, that's an exaggeration, but there is... If you look back at what people were arguing back in the 90s, that's what they were arguing. Mm. If they can get this technology, 
technology and trade with us and we lower trade barriers, well, everyone's going to, you know, start acting better. Yeah. <laughs> and, 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 and China will become this team player within the geopolitical system. Uh, that's probably, I don't think it would be hard to argue that that's happened given what we've seen out of China just in the last five years or so. It seems to be heading in the opposite direction. Even in things like vaccines, we've seen that sometimes China, it doesn't even ask for access to technologies that have been developed in the United States or want them necessarily and eventually develop its own. Correct. Uh, And partly out of a, a kind of national pride. Arguably, too, with bad consequences for China itself. In other words, you know, some of the zero COVID policy that's been put in place is clearly a reflection of the fact that there are significant swaths of the population that haven't been vaccinated at all with an effective vaccine in China. So you have this odd, like, authoritarian attempt to control the virus when there was another way of controlling it with Western vaccines. But that was a no-no. This is significant. When that came down, I was blown away when I read the order. I was like, good Lord. And it was interesting because, you know, you you may have anticipated something like this under Donald Trump, but it wasn't necessarily going to be obviously the case under President Biden. No, like I really would have bet that Biden would have been all about normalization. You know what I mean? That there would have been this kind of like, let's just reset. So I don't know what, you know, you've got to assume that they know things we don't. Maybe there's really profound instances of espionage or stated intentions to acquiring the technology for military purposes. I mean, one thing is that the real vexing issue here is what's called dual-use technologies, things that have peacetime applications but could just as readily be put toward authoritarian or imperialistic ends. So, for example, like quantum computing, well, you could argue it's great for the tech sector, could also, though, be used for missile systems and things like that. And so the question of how to, like, keep civilian technology that has military applications out of the hands of China seems to be a growing and abiding preoccupation of the Biden administration. And the Biden administration doesn't seem to be giving China the benefit of the doubt. Do no, it is not. Yeah. And that alone is significant and interesting, actually, and also maybe suggestive that hopes for a reset are probably fading and that we're moving towards some other kind of geopolitical equilibrium that is not dominated by open borders and the free flow of goods and ideas. Bloomberg Opinion's Stephen Mim, history professor at the University of Georgia. Well, that does it for this week's Bloomberg Opinion. Do get in touch with us. We love hearing your thoughts and opinions. I'm at vquinn at bloomberg.net. And don't forget, we're also available as a podcast on Apple, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. We're produced by Eric Mollo. Till next time on Bloomberg Opinion. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum, powered by Bloomberg. 
Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.